1: Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Michelle R. Scott, author of Toba Time, Black Vaudeville and the Theater Owners Booking Association in Jazz Age America, published by the University of Illinois Press in 2023. The Theater Owners Booking Association was a circuit of vaudeville theaters active between 1920 and 1930 that booked black blues singers, comedians, dancers and many other kinds of entertainers into black serving theaters throughout the nation. Toba theaters launched and nurtured the careers of many Black performers, including Bessie Smith, Ethel Waters, and Hattie McDaniel. Scott traces Toba's antecedents in the early 1900s and documents the 10 years of its existence. She contextualizes Toba within the politics of segregated America, the Black communities served by its theaters, and its effect on the lives and careers of thousands of Black performers. Thank you for joining me today, Michelle. I'm excited to talk to you about this great book. Thank you for having me. How did you get interested in this topic?
0: Well, Total Time is actually my second book project. So my first um, full-length book project was on Bessie Smith, um, the blues singer who kind of developed her, her musical consciousness, um, before she became the Empress of the Blues in 1923 in New York, um, she was born and raised in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And so I really searched in that first book to figure out what types of influences she had in terms of her parentage, education, the racial discrimination in the, in the city, and what made her interested in being a blues performer. And so Told the Time kind of grew out of that because as I started to do research on um Bessie Smith's lives, I found out that she was a headliner on the Toba circuit and that conveniently enough for me and my research, Chattanooga was one of the headquarters cities of Toba time. So it was uh, an easy, not easy, it was a logical continuation from looking at an individual performer and their influences in African-American art to looking at the entire circuit that really bolstered the careers of African-American entertainers like Smith and countless of others.
1: Um, So just so that we have kind of a baseline to start with can you explain a little bit more about the business of vaudeville in the United States, and why black performers and businessmen felt they really needed a black serving black vaudeville um, circuit.
0: Sure. So vaudeville as a genre of theater was one of the most um, popular and profitable forms of live entertainment between the 1880s till about the early 1920s. Um, On the vaudeville stage, you could have everything from a musician, a comedian, a dancer, to a a hula hooper, uh, someone who blew the harmonica with their nostrils. Anything and everything went on the vaudeville stage. And so having act after act all lined up together without a set script, Left for a variety of performances and an abundance of people to come in. So vaudeville in terms of the types of acts was quite diverse. In terms of the people performing together on the stage at the same time, it fell prey to segregation just like everything else um, in American society. And so there were African-American performers who were headliners on white vaudeville circuits based out in New York. So people like Sammy Davis Jr., um, Burt Williams, people who made the crossover um, in the early years of vaudeville. Um, But a vaudeville performance could be 10 to 20 acts playing two to three times a day, especially in continuous vaudeville, Out of that 10 to 20 acts, there may be two African American performers. And where they were actually lined up in the billing um, usually tended to be last, um, which means you can't really uh, ensure that you'll have an audience member staying around at two in the morning to see that last act. And so um, Black theater professionals um, who had always been performing in their own separate circuits or separate uh, venues, really thought they needed to have a, a circuit that was designated for their performance um, alone um, so that they would be able to showcase more entertainers, but also so they would be able to deal with the, the tricky part of the business part of vaudeville: who gets paid how people are moving across the country, where people uh, reside as they move from city to city, where are they going to eat? The problems of segregation and racial violence um, made just basic decisions that much more difficult to make for a Black performer. And so with Toba, they had a separate venue to try to make some of those decisions a little bit easier for regular, um, your everyday performer from that harmonica blower to that hula hooper.
1: Um, You start the book, prior to when Toba actually begins with um, sort of uh, looking at different business owners and entertainers who uh, sort of, created the beginnings of that institution essentially and there were a lot of really interesting people that you profiled we don't really have time to talk about all of them but I'm particularly interested in S.H. Dudley who is a character who um, runs throughout the entire book he was really a foundational figure in black entertainment and in that period and that sort of first quarter to half century um in in or half the half century of the 20th century. Can you talk about him some and tell us more about him?
0: Sure. Um, Sherman H. Dudley, um, or S.H., as he was uh, commonly known, was really one of the architects of the toba circuit he begins his own career as a blackface minstrel performer um, in texas in the 1880s so even as an african-american he is still blacking up um, which was not seen as a controversial decision at the time if you wanted to be a performer particularly a comedian um, on the vaudeville or vaudeville adjacent stages uh, you blacked up even as an african-american um, and he moved from being a performer in different groups and ensembles um, to eventually becoming a stage manager of some of uh, the larger uh, minstrel performances like the smart set, for example. And so... As he starts to move from the 19th to the 20th centuries, he's able to put the Black face aside and step beyond the stage to behind the scenes. And he really has a mind for business, not just theater business, but business writ large, Um, in terms of he sees a Black-owned theater and the circus that may follow as really uh, uh, an effort in having Black autonomy on the stage. in some of the periods of the worst racial violence, he has been a performer um, and he had performed and not received any money. He had faced individual violence in his own life. And so around 1907, as he is kind of crossing the level between being a performer and being a stage manager and kind of a producer of black shows, um, and he even makes it to Broadway for a, a brief moment, um, He. Promotes in Black newspapers the idea that there should be a Black owned theater circuit um, that would cater to the needs of Black performers. And so um, by 1912, he's able to realize that for himself. He has moved to Chicago since then. Um, And then in 1912, he's in Chicago and in DC, and he leases out formally. white-owned movie theaters and kind of turns them into the Dudley Circuit. So by 1912 uh, until 1918, he has about 10 to 12 different theaters on the East Coast that are part of the Dudley Circuit, which they call Dudley Time. So there are still Black vaudeville performers, um, and they are going from theater to theater throughout Washington, D.C., Virginia, some in North Carolina. Um, and he's making a name for himself as a theater magnate, um, <clears throat> to the point that when Toba gets started and Toba's kind of the result of vaudeville wars between different circuits that are trying to showcase Black performers um, that are not Black-owned. He is called in to kind of um, shore up the toba circuit in 1921 and so dudley is involved in every facet of black entertainment business from on stage as a performer himself uh, to early race films he's some of the one of the early investors in films that would mirror those of like oscar michaud um, to being one of the founders of the colored actors union the union that primarily shored up black vaudevillians in the 1920s so he is uh in my eyes kind of like mr black vaudeville right he is every wear all the time um, but he's not alone so he is um, joined by other theater professionals as well um <clears throat>
1: excuse me um so these circuits of theaters just just so that our listeners who might not be familiar with it know sure. what what he's doing and then what toba to, toba does is a coalition of uh, theaters grouped together that are booking all together. So, you know, Dudley will hire you know, a group of performers and they'll go and book them in every theater in that circuit. And then they can't be booked in other theater circuits, right? Like if you're in a Toba circuit, then these competing circuits can't book that entertainer. Isn't that correct? They sort of exactly. create a monopoly.
0: So once right? you are performing in a, in a theater that's franchised by Toba or even with the earlier Dudley circuit, um, you're insured at, 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 at the best 40 weeks of performing which is a wonderful thing for a vaudeville performer i mean it's and the idea of a circuit is supposed to make performing easier for the artist, but it's also supposed to make publicity um, easier for trying to drum up that audience who is like, okay, we know that the next comedy duo is coming to our city. We're going to get ready for that, right? Um, In a time before you have like the crisscross global marketing that we have now, there was no way to know that a Bessie Smith or an Alberta was going to come to your town unless you knew that they are always booked at a Toba theater and I can be sure to see one of my favorite acts there. And so it was supposed to make um, some of the, the business part a little bit more um, maneuverable for the artist and the audience. Um, and it also incurred a great bit of profit for the entrepreneurs who who bought into the franchise of, of Toba Theaters.
1: So the managers um, and also the people who ran Toba uh, mm-hmm. were both black and white. and. Yes. um uh, can you let's start with um, the black owners and the and the people like S.H. Dudley, who is black. Mm-hmm. Um, are their primary motivations just this is my business, I'm doing this. Or did you see them also having sort of political, at least small p, political um, aspirations, ideas about maybe overcoming segregation mm-hmm. or undermining segregation? I mean, Are you seeing both of those or are these just businessmen and this is what they do?
0: You are seeing both. So, you're seeing both people who are using business to um, upbuild Black communities, both politically, socially, and economically. And you're also seeing people who are saying, Oh, I can make a profit by owning this this theater, and people keep coming into these shows. Um, it really depended on the region. So, the, the book is really regionally specific in terms of how well the theater functioned, whether it was the showcase of a community in terms of that's where you saw all the shows and it's purely entertainment or whether that theater during the downtime was also used for political rallies, church meetings, fundraisers. Um, and what comes to mind for me are the theaters that are um, part of the early planning of the circuit in Philadelphia. So John T. Gibson um, has the Dunbar Theater and the Standard Theater on South Street in Philadelphia. And when those theaters are not showcasing either early silent film or Uh, vaudeville performances, they are being used to house community groups, right? So sometimes theaters in a community um, are the only spaces large enough outside of a church to really host these large gatherings of folks who are trying to um, solve some of the most pressing problems of the day. So you saw that in Philadelphia, you saw that in St. Louis, um, in the Booker T. Washington Theater there with C.H. Turpin. Um, Some of the early charter members um, of the group, um, both black and white, would allow their theaters to be part of this larger political movement. Perform some of the smaller theaters on the circuit, um, places um, outside of the main th- uh, cities that we may think of. Those were purely entertainment centers. So it really depended on the community around the theater. And
1: how did white people get involved in TOBA? Why were they interested in being part of that business?
0: So. Because vaudeville itself was always multiracial, some of the vaudevillian managers who had been part of the larger circus, like the Keith Orpheum or the other theater circus that were based in New York, um, are still interested in the business of vaudeville. And when they see that there is an opportunity to make money, essentially, in Black vaudeville, there is what Uh, other authors refer to as a vaudeville war that's going on between 1918 roughly to about 1920. And so you have different um, consortiums of theater circuits, one based in Florida, one based in Chattanooga, another based in Chicago, that are interracial circuits at the top in terms of those who own the individual theaters, um, but the performers are still all African American, and the audiences are predominantly African American. And so in this race to see who is going to be the most successful successful, um, the publicity that kind of spanned all the Black periodicals was talking about who's going to win the race, right? Who's going to get the franchise? Where are we going to see our more, more favorite performers? Which circuit? And so Toba actually becomes a um, a conglomeration of other theater circuits that had uh, rose to success in 1918, 1919. And in the initial charter, they're all white members of, of Topa all, all white members based on the Chattanooga um, charter. Um, and it's not until you read the charter, look at the mission statement, and look at the tax records thereafter that you realize that the board included some of those Black theater professionals that had worked with Dudley. right, And so some of it may have to do with the incorporation rules in the state of Tennessee about a mixed interracial group and who could be working together. Um, But you get the sense that there are some white Tolbert theater managers that are purely using the circuit as a way to make money. and that they would make money off of a Black performer, a white performer, a green performer. It's purely money. And then there are other senses that uh, some of the headquarter uh, managers, people like Samuel Riven um, in Chattanooga or Martin Klein in Chicago, really have a a joint partnership with people like Dudley and Gibson, that they have been working with these people the entire time. um, And they see the value in Black vaudeville um, as an art form.
1: Um, you mentioned Samuel Reeven, who's another person that kind of runs through the whole book, mm-hmm. um, and he was an immigrant. And I noticed that at least of the people that you, um, profiled who were white, the vast mm-hmm. majority were immigrants. And I wondered if you think that was just a coincidence because there was a lot of immigration in that period, or do you see something significant about the fact that so many of these business people were immigrants, the white business people are working in Toba?
0: I really see that um, vaudeville attracted immigrants in general. That um, as uh, an entity that allowed the you know the person who's just arriving yesterday to be a star, it really uh, created a niche for folks who were coming into the country. And so some of the early people who are uh, either running Toba or influencing the discussion about how Toba is going to be created are either. Jewish immigrants, we have some Irish immigrants, so we have some Italian immigrants, um, and a lot of that uh, business acumen to try and, that need to, like, I need to make this money to build up my community, I just got here, um, is overlaps with all of those different racial ethnicities. I think the interesting thing for me was that um, beyond the the high immigrant population of owners and managers um, was the clash that happened with native-born um white managers, particularly in the South right about the ideas of blackness about the idea there was no discussion of black art and autonomy it was like this is business right um so i think about the main clashes that happened between like a samuel Reven and a charles bailey in atlanta for example um that just the way they fundamentally looked at race was vastly different which de- definitely you can see in their business discussions that they have in their correspondence so there was a whole um background a microcosm of what's occurring racially and and and, and racially and in terms of ethnic relations in the background of the circuit itself that had often nothing to do with what we were seeing on stage.
1: Um, you bring up uh, Bailey in Atlanta and um, these different ideas about race. And of course, this was a period where there was significant amount of racial violence. There was significant yes. Um, uh, clashes in cities around the country mm-hmm. um, brought about by race and um, one of those cities that you spend a lot of time thinking about is Tulsa because yes. the Tulsa theaters were caught up in um, uh, the uh, the Tulsa massacre and um, it's also one of the few places where a woman is an important player in this mm-hmm. vaudeville business side this is a business that is very de- the business side, not so much the performing side, but the business side is very dominated by men. And I was wondering if you could First talk a little bit about the Tulsa um, Massacre and how that theater gets involved, why theaters were often sort of in the center of this kind of Mm -hmm. racial violence, but then also maybe talk a little bit about Lula T. Williams
0: as well. Sure, sure. So Tulsa came um, into my sights as I started to explore because the theaters in Oklahoma um, owned and operated by John and Luella T. Williams were some of the first to pick up the franchise when the charter first went out. So the Toba's chartered in December of 1920, and some of the first theaters to sign on by like January of 1921 are these theaters in Oklahoma. And so the Tulsa Dreamland Theater, um, which pre existed the Toba Circuit, had already been doing well, had been garnering a following in Black newspapers, had um, hosted some of the headliners of the day, um, is a premier theater on the circuit in that first fiscal year. Um, and it's in that first fiscal year that the Tulsa Massacre happens in May, um, late May, early June of 1921. And so the Dreamland Theater is um, appointed. Uh, reminder of the racial violence that happens in Tulsa because it is leveled to the ground um, with performers who had been preparing for the next day's show in the theater. They managed to leave with their lives and the clothes on their backs. Um, And because there's so much information in Black newspapers about that particular event, about um, the violence that followed the Williams family, um, it, it just became kind of like a hallmark in, in the book for me to, to really ask the big questions about what happens when the stage is not a refuge, right? When you're not just looking for entertainment and comedy and art, um, but when you can't even get to the stage without trying to navigate um, the escalating racial violence that had happened um, in places like Tulsa. And so Um, The Dreamland Theater also stands out because it is in the Greenwood District of Tulsa, and it is across the street from the Dixieland Theater, which is also a Black-serving theater, but not a Black-owned theater. Um, That theater is not leveled to the ground in the massacre right? They're on the same street. They're yards away from each other. They're both serving the same audiences, but the management made a difference in who actually owned and operated the theater. Um, And in looking at things like the Chicago Girls Defender or the Baltimore Afro-American, just the details they went into and in talking about the fact that Tulsa is targeted for Black economic success. That was the only crime that had been committed, right? And so the fact that the Dreamland was outperforming the Dixie Theater economically made it another target, right? And so I it, the questions about violence, about um, persevering and existing in everyday environments that perpetuate uh, white supremacy was something that fascinated me that I didn't start the book with those questions, but it very much became uh, a, one of the main focuses that I that I have in the book. Um, Williams, Luella Williams, as an owner was rare. There were probably only about eight to nine African-American women who owned or co-managed some of the theaters of the circuit. And there are over hundred theaters on the circuit in that period between 1920 and 1930. Um, and she owned three theaters in Oklahoma. Oklahoma, so it's not just Tulsa, but she also has um, theaters and two other cities in the state. And so the fact that um, if you look at um, the city directory, you don't know who an LT Williams is, right? She's very um, skilled in hiding her gender identity um, in some respects, depending on where you're looking at um, uh, the, the ownership uh, listings, sometimes her racial identity. But then within the Tulsa newspapers, um, they give her her respect and say, this is Mrs. Llewilla L- 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 T. Williams is the proprietor of the Dreamland Theater. And so I thought it was fascinating as a women's historian, as well as an entertainment historian, to see how much agency the circuit afforded um, Black and white women in the business side, not just as entertainers.
1: Um. So I I really fascinated me as you were talking about the Tulsa uh, massacre, how the level of surveillance the white community had on the black community in Tulsa. And I'm sure Mm -hmm. throughout the country that they would know which theater was black owned and which theater was doing better when presumably Mm -hmm. the bulk of the audience members were black. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, it wasn't like white people were going to those theaters, but they knew what was going on in those theaters. And that, Mm -hmm. that was, was really enlightening, I think. And, um, that we see just how, um, under surveillance these businesses were, Uh um, uh, so, you know, and and to spare one and to target the other.
0: Right. Like every dollar that came in was somehow, uh, uh, there was someone who knew about how this money was being earned. Um, and, the dreamland managed to salvage um the working desk of of mrs williams and it's actually showcased right now at the national museum of african american culture and history the smithsonian in dc so i've done my pilgrimage to the museum to kind of visit the the remnants of, of the theater um but the fact that she even in the loss of the theater she pursued insurance claims um to try to receive some damages right it wasn't just this is the end of the theater and that's it she rebuilt it um, she continued to own and operate the other theaters in Oklahoma City um, and it was really a testament to her skill and survival sense that even though they had re- um, gone through one of the worst horrific racial massacres that had the early 20th century had seen that these pe- people were still rebuilding and fighting even within their field of owning and operating businesses, catering to the community that they had left, um, it it didn't do what it was meant to do, which was to actually level the Black spirit, right? It actually um, engaged them in a different way.
1: Um, So like anything, there are still critics. Mm -hmm. And um, as Toba, particularly as Toba was coming together, at least that's what I understood from your book, there were Black critics of toba and of the whole and maybe even of the whole idea uh-huh. maybe not the whole idea of having a vaudeville black vaudeville circuit but of toba in particular um and some of the people who are involved in it and one of those critics was sylvester russell who yes. anyone who works in this period reads sylvester russell he was by far i think you know, in the early 1900s, probably mm-hmm. the most important Black entertainment critic, sort of business mm-hmm. commentator, entertainment critic um, in the United States. And he was not a fan. Can you talk a little bit about Sylvester Russell, his role in all of this? Yeah. Why was he upset about Toba Time? Kind of give our listeners an idea of Russell.
0: Sure. Russell um, is a fascinating figure, and I think a lot of his critique of Time was really a personal fight that he had with Dudley, right? And so Russell and Dudley are existing in the same world at the same time. Russell actually is a performer in minstrel shows before he becomes a theater critic, so he does have some um, expertise and experience on the artist side, not just on the stage critic side. Um, And his discussions of Black performances and reviews of from music, dance, comedy, um, are all over things like the Indianapolis Freeman. Um, later, he's going to continue a column in the in the Pittsburgh Courier. And so he, as you mentioned, is one of the foremost experts in Black dramatic arts, which I think is, is his calling card in the Freeman. I am the foremost, you know, he doesn't have any uh, lack of hubris there, right? And so um, in his discussion of the run-up to Toba. Like there is all of this discussion about the deadly circuit before it actually gets off the ground. And he, um, Russell is quick to say that do we know enough about Dudley? How can he make this move from being, you know, the man who performs in Blackface with the mule named Patrick to being this theater entrepreneur? And so a lot of it is the infighting that happens uh, as a matter of a clash of personalities. Um, Russell doesn't think that the circuit needs to be all Black, which is what initially Dudley had um actually discussed. He believes it should be an interracial circuit and that anybody who is an artist who celebrates Black art should be welcome to join. he thinks that the circuit should be headlined. If there is going to be a circuit, it should be headlined in Chicago and not in Washington, D.C. He's hesitant to really talk about the inclusion of African Americans in the South, which is where the majority of African Americans were at the time. Um, and I would go as far to say that Russell really thought of himself as an elitist, right? That he was beyond the talented tenth that I, you know, that same kind of idea that I am the foremost critic that I know better than any other person who's actually actually been performing, but Dudley had been performing the entire time that Russell was criticizing Black theater. Um, And then they had a a personal desktop in Chicago right before Topo got started, which is a a side story that only made it in the footnotes, but they had a, 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 a Full-on physical fight, altercation, in which Russell sued for damages after um being quote unquote the victim of the fisticuffs that happened with Dudley. And so all of that bled into the creation of the circuit, right? And it was all very well documented in Black newspapers. And these are not gossip newspapers. These are the main, you know, news periodicals of the day. Um, and so Russell's idea about what black art meant fed into his own personal ideology about his beliefs in a really interracial society. Like, I fell down the research rabbit hole with Russell, as you can kind of hear, and I did some extra reading on his publications outside of theater. And he wrote this whole other story, uh, uh, work, nonfiction work, called The Amalgamation of the Races, in which he really believed that um, each generation of African-Americans would become better and better the more that they intermarried with white members of American society, right? He wasn't uh, at all someone who was a champion of black nationalism where Dudley started there, right? Um, And so, yeah, it was definitely a personality clash but also an ideological difference that allowed him to um, talk about Toba in the most negative ways he possibly could.
1: Yes, he's a real curmudgeon reading. Uh, (laughs) And you can tell (laughs) who he's upset with because he doesn't make any bones about it. And it's... um, Yeah, he's a fascinating read, but uh, a really fascinating character. I did not know about that book. I'm totally going to go read it now. (laughs) That is fascinating. I'm not surprising, though, based upon his his critique. I I can see how he would would believe that. Um, Russell was a critic, as you said, of sort of the idea. He's a critic of Dudley's because Mm -hmm. they don't get along. But there are other critiques of Toba and Um, particularly their entertainers um, women entertainers but the entertainment in general based upon um, the types of entertainment they were doing the types of singing they were doing how they were entertaining people can you talk a little bit about that um, clash within black communities about Mm -hmm. vaudeville in general and these performers and what they
0: did One of the greatest clashes that happened as the circuit was growing was about the content of performances in terms of um, were they really showing um, Black people off in the most respectable light? So this is the the period of the book where I spent some time on the politics of respectability and how, um, you know, race community builders really believed that in everything, African-Americans should showcase their most honored and dignified selves. And having comedy sketches that frankly talked about sexuality or having coarse girls in scantily clad outfits um, or having sensuous sexual type dances was not in the minds of many um, of an elder generation of African-Americans, an elder generation, a conservative generation, um, the most respectable way of presenting African-Americans, especially in the middle of the racial clashes that were happening, right? So this is not a critique that was only saved for vaudeville. This happened in literature. This happened in music. um, This happened in um, oratory discussions. Everything was being discussed about how should African Americans present themselves in this ideal of racial uplift, right, where every one African American represents the whole. And so the idea of um, respectability really kind of infused its way into the circuit at the top because there were all of these discussions about censorship. Um, and even Dudley himself, who was responding to a lot of people who wrote into the Chicago Defender or into the Indianapolis Freeman to kind of critique that latest show at their theater, um, he was saying, well, perhaps these shows are too risque, right? And so he Um, wanted to have what he called kind of like a censorship overlord, right? That each one of these theaters should have someone who would kind of investigate the material before it went forth on the stage, not for of is is it humorous, you know, is dancing well done, but is is this going to be respectable? An idea that of course did not go through, Um, but it was in the the notes that the managers had amongst each other, right? In the correspondence about um, what are we going to do about this level of what they called cut the smut, right? That was one of the articles that happened that even Reven is also part of, right? So it's a discussion that's happening between both the Black and white managers at the top. um, And it's happening very much at the expense of the over 400 Black performers who are saying, I should be able to do whatever act I want to do. Um, And a lot of it centered on Um, the morality clauses that most of these performers had in their individual contracts. Um, So they had contracts with Toba and they may have had contracts with their individual booking um, or agencies, but most of the contracts were very clear on the language that should be used on stage, um, but even the behavior that should be seen off stage, particularly for women performers. Um, No alcoholism, no fraternizing, no in public sexually. there, It was very much there. And these are clauses that were taken right from white vaudevillian clauses as well. So the idea of censorship and respectability was not just reserved for Black vaudeville, but it's very much heightened in the time period that we're looking at.
1: Um, so let's turn uh, just slightly differently from, from this. So you have these huge as you mentioned most of these theaters are in the south yeah. because that's where african americans lived mm-hmm. but um what what determined or what or maybe a different way to say this would be was was there um kind of a typical community that had a black serving theater. Like, you know, you know what I mean? That that mm-hmm. um some communities in the South had one, some did not. You know, there's some communities in the north that had one, uh, some did not. Did you see sort of a typical Toba theater, or was this just really about here's an entrepreneur in town, they start a theater and it's really about who happens to live there.
0: Often the way that um theaters were placed in a community kind of follow the patterns that had existed a generation before in terms of the traveling minstrel shows, right? So if they had a circuit that had moved and had a theater in St. Louis that eventually moved to a southern city, and then there may be something in Dallas, and then there may be something in Jackson, Mississippi, or then in Bessemer, Alabama, where the minstrel shows had been, um, those theater spaces often still existed. And so those spaces were kind of rebuilt and then franchised with Toba. And so some of it wasn't actually Toba's design 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 about in the very beginning years about where a theater would be. Um, As it reached its height of success in the 25, 26 um, performance year, then you started to see other theaters um, signing on to get the franchise. But the typical community, um, again, was very much regional. So you could have something like Chicago, um, which had maybe two or three Toba theaters, but it also had another 10 to 20 other Black-serving theaters. Um, So TOBA was just one of the many, or you could have something like the Booker T. Washington Theater in St. Louis, where where that might've been the only Black-serving theater in that particular space. Um, And so it it depended on the size of the community, um, whether they had attended live performance theater before, um, and in some respects, whether they thought it was going to be a profitable venture to join in with with TOBA. Not every TOBA theater that got started lasted the entire 10 years or five years, depending on when they joined the franchise. And so it was kind of like hit and miss, depending on on where you were um, in in the country. Um, There tended to be more theaters throughout the South, um, and they were closer together to travel to. So something like the Chattanooga Theater, which was a headquarter city, um, could quickly follow the one that was in Macon, Georgia, could quickly follow the one that in Atlanta. Um, They were close together relatively in terms of traveling. Um, But when you get to places like the Midwest, they could be a little further out. You might have one or two in the state, as opposed to having two or three in in a city. So it really differed depending on the region.
1: I noticed that there was no theater that you listed in your appendix in New York Mm. City. I don't think you um, quoted Lester Walton, who was the critic of the New York age. And Mm -hmm. I wondered at that, you know, why is New York, which was the center of white vaudeville, center of musical comedy, was really the uh, popular entertainment center of of certainly of the Mm -hmm. white entertainment world, Why no theaters in New York? Because it's a huge center of Black cultural activity, certainly in that period.
0: It is, it is. And Dudley had actually broke into the New York scene. Um, He had made it to Broadway and done a run before he decides to um, actually start the the Dudley Theater. Um, There was no theater in New York, because Toba, for as as lofty as it was amongst Black communities, was seen as second-tier theater, right? Um, there was no way that a Black theater was going to compete with the Palace in, in, in New York and any of the Keith Orpheum-owned theaters there. Um, so there was the Lafayette Theater that was emerging as a Black theater in the 19-teens in, in Harlem on the, or on the edge of Harlem. Um, but that theater was did not have the Toba franchise. That theater thought of itself as the cream of the, crop. This was the theater that would eventually, its clientele would merge into what the Apollo became uh, just a, a couple of decades later. And so the theater, the farthest north that had any Toba direct relations um, were the ones of Philadelphia, um, the Standard and the Dunbar. So it was more so that, you know, oh, the majority of the audiences that they were trying to attract were working class Southern African-Americans. Um, and so the the migrants who had moved to New York and Philly and Boston, they, they would like to see a show, but they would have to come down to Philadelphia to see it. Um, no. So New York was out um, and any theater in the West Coast was also not part of the, of the franchise. This was primarily a Southeastern Midwest circuit.
1: You brought up that they were looking for a Black working-class audience. Can you uh-huh. um, expand a little bit more on who was going to Toba? Kind of who were they trying to attract that sort of who was the audience for a Toba yeah. theater?
0: So I open up the the book with the audience member because i think that's a way to kind of um bring in the reader into the story so you see yourself as the audience member and so i open up the book with a young Bessie dudley who is Um, about 12 when she is watching these chorus girls and blues singers in Baltimore um, and a 14-year-old Leonard Reed um, who is in Kansas City. And they are watching the comedians, the dancers, the tabloid shows, the costumes. Um, And so your average audience tended to run kind of young. Um, So you had anywhere from, you know, those teens and preteens but all the way up into later adult years, depending on the act. Um, The thing with the TOBA audience is that um, you, as the uh, the audience member, could see yourself on stage. You could see yourself in a way that the rest of society could never see you. I often use the the expression when people looking at like Alberta Hunter or Bessie Smith or Ma Rainey, that you, as an audience member, were a feather boa away (laughs) from being a blues queen, right? You too could achieve that success. So the, the audience members tended to be folks who, you know, had a little bit of leisure money to uh, spend on a vaudeville performance, but they were hardworking folks who really used um, the theater um, as a way of escape, right? And to be able to go to a theater that was designated for them and not have to go to a theater where they went to a segregated balcony um made the theater space a refuge for audience members as much as it was as a refuge for black entertainers and so anybody and anybody anybody and everybody could be the audience member but you had to have at least that 5 to 10 cents <laughs> to be able to enter um depending on where the the show actually ran so people who were uh, the lovers of blues music early comedy groups, um, early kind of jazz, vaudeville, music dance um, shows, Um, those are folks who fill the theaters. And when we're talking about the size of the audience, it might be a theater that is as small as 200 to 400 seats or as large as 1,500 to 2,000 seats, depending on the city. And so if you run four or five shows a day, in some cases, you can basically showcase your art to a large percentage of that, that community's Black population.
1: Um, did they have to abide by segregation rules in the audience for those states that had laws about uh, theater seatings? Did they have to, I don't know, did they have to, um, set aside a certain number of seats for white uh, patrons, for instance, or what or is that not an issue in a black serving theater? How did, how did they have to deal with those segregation laws?
0: so the majority of the audiences in most holba theaters were black um they're particularly in states that had um, de facto segregation, um, there weren't any seats reserved for white audience members. Um, You had some controversy in some of the cities like Nashville, um, where the owner there who was part of of the the early charter membership, um, Milton Starr, actually opened the theater for kind of a reverse midnight ramble where he would host white audience members um, after midnight, for black shows um, in a black theater and then not allow, if you have white patrons there, you can't have black patrons there according to Tennessee's segregation laws. So it wasn't so much spaces within the theater. And in that case, it was the whole theater. So this became the problem. And one of the things that I talk about that leads to the downfall um, of the circuit is that the problem of navigating or what they called obeying Jim Crow or Jim Crow bait that you had white-owned theaters that would showcase Black performers but also abide by segregation and force African Americans to go to a balcony and pay more, but the actual surroundings look nicer, right? So they're trying to entice Black audience members to come in versus the Toba Theater that might be a bit smaller, a bit um, less well-kept, Kept, um, but it was a Black-owned and navigated space. And so trying to figure out the rules that keep shifting depending on where you were from city to city um made it more difficult to just figure out who's the audience who wants to come where you know where can i see ethel waters will i be able to sit in the balcony can i sit on the floor i mean the, the reason that you have uh, going back to the question about new york is that you could have folks come up and see all the black art that was developing during the renaissance and you could have white you know um fans of the music the dance and the comedy and they could just go and they could not sit together it wasn't like a we're all racially harmonious period but they could be welcomed into that space for that moment that wasn't happening in southern theaters
1: um the actors and entertainers that worked for toba called it tough on black actors that's what they Uh said toba stood for um and i think one of the interesting things about the book was sort of uh, what does that mean? What does it mean that yeah. Toba is tough on Black actors? Tell us some
0: more about that. So in the three-part, you know, format of the book where I look at the audience, start with the audience, then I look at the entrepreneur, and then I look at the artist, um, the the acronym, you know, tough on Black actors or tough on Black asses, depending on what they refer to, and this is what they're calling it in the 1920s in Black newspapers, um, which is salacious even itself, Um I wanted to know, is that because the theater experience is just difficult? Is it hard auditioning? Um, is it racially discriminatory, even within a Black servants theater? Is it gender discriminatory? And what I found um, looking through the oral histories of hundreds of the performers who uh, were contracted on the circuit. Is that it was both. It was tough because the pay could be uh um, not that great. If you weren't a headliner, you're making $35 a week at which you're paying your lodging and your food out of that per you no, know, your per diem is out of the $35 a week. Um, and you're struggling, right? So there are articles that are talking about how the Toba performers are struggling, but then when you uh reflect on how much a performer is making versus a, you know, a domestic or a coal miner or a hack driver. Um, they're doing pretty well. Right. Um, so it's relative, but then just the level of traveling is so difficult trying to navigate, um, segregated rail systems um, in which you might pay the same fee and then you're relegated to a car with a drunken disorderly and maybe perhaps livestock all in the same thing and, and wanting to rebel against that. There's no rebellion for 40 people who need to be in the next city within the next five hours, right? So trying to navigate How are you going to get to a place where you're going to stay if there's not a Black hotel, um, mainly lodging in these boarding homes, which then further discriminated against um, Black women performers? Um, I I do a whole section where I just talk about the the things that happened to um, TOBA women in terms of how they had to face increased sexual violence. disparities in terms of people who had a notion that women who performed on the stage were inherently promiscuous, all of those stereotypes are being leveled at individual performers. and then there was the question, did the negative part, of which there were many, um, outweigh the rewards of the circuit? And I conclude that no, it did not outweigh the rewards, which were the opportunity to build community, the artistic education that these performers received, where they may have not been to a music school or a conservatory, right? There are people like Thomas Dorsey, who before he becomes the founder of gospel music, um, is learning the basics of performance and composing as by being the pianist for Ma Rainey on the Toba circuit, right? So there's also that cross between the secular and the sacred. Um, but Toba was everything and anything at the same time. Um, you wanted to ensure that you made enough money to get to the next city, which as the circuit grew on and faced really kind of a downturn by 1927, even before it finally ended in 1930 that you had been contracted for maybe 40 weeks in 1924 and then by 1927 you're guaranteed 10 weeks right you can't make a living on 10 weeks of performing without taking an additional job which a lot of these performers ended up doing so it was tough it was not you know for the week to go into the circuit and even the people who were critiquing the circuit um performer performers um talked about that like this is a great job if you can withstand the hardships of being a traveling entertainer
1: um you mentioned that by 1930 toba had dissolved why Mm -hmm. what happened to toba
0: So it goes through a series of uh, uh, death by little cuts, I would say. So at first in 1927, uh, vaudeville as a whole is going to be faced with a competition from sound films, right? So we start to see the jazz singer emerge in 1927, um, followed by films that become more and more sophisticated with how they use sound. um, And they capture an audience in a way um, that silent films had not, right? Um, Even barring the difficulties of the technology of sound film. Once they kind of figure that out, there's a whole host of people who are saying, I can go to see a movie five or six times for the same amount that I might be able to see one vaudeville show. And so there's a period where vaudeville theaters, not just Toba, but vaudeville theaters in general, are playing both films, silent films, and then having vocal acts at the same time. And then when sound films come in and they have to wire those theaters for sound, there's not the space for both live entertainment and sound film. So they're being hit by that. the management structure of Toba, there's a lot a host of infighting that happens 1927, 1928, um, at the top. So the very top level of management with people like Dudley, but also uh further down the line with other managers who want to release the franchise. Um, I'm not making enough money, films are beating us out, you know, I want to give this back up. Um or I want to start, there was one performer, one manager who wanted to have a completely white toba, and I'm like, that's called vaudeville, you don't need a, it's already been done, right? But they're writing in their correspondence about how are we going to solve the issue of flailing receipts, right? We're losing money. um, And the infighting escalates, and then Dudley has his own separate, horrific, violent situation with he has married for a second time, um, his wife leaves him or threatens to leave him. And then her new lover actually ends up killing her and trying to kill himself. Well, that's not the headline you need to see, like you know Toba theater magnet caught up in suicide love triangle because people are not trying to go to the show. Dudley becomes the show. And so that's a drawback, the manager and fighting and the spectacles in their own um, lives. But for, finally, the thing that drives it to a real close is the coming of the Great Depression, which hits black communities even before it hits America more largely. And so people don't have the same type of leisure income that they had just a couple of years earlier to be able to afford that seat that was 50 cents or 75 cents or a dollar, right? That's a week's worth of rent in some cases. And so all of these things make um, the unfortunate perfect storm that causes the end of, of the Toba circuit.
1: What do you see as the legacy of Toba?
0: Toba's legacy is is very rich. It's really what I argue in the text, that it's the foundation of live Black theater entertainment in the 20th century. And some of the shows um, that we see now, or the concerts that we see now in the 21st century, the success of something even like uh, the Beyonce's Renaissance tour this past summer, is learning and building upon all of the skills that had come out from this earlier 20th century version of theater performing. How to contract an audience, how to market, um, learning your art on the stage as an audience member, um, as an artist, rather, the audience actually figuring out where can I figure out the, the next performer, forming these early fan clubs, but also establishing. Um, more largely, that Black art is something that should be valued and respected in itself, an entity unto itself, is what Toba did. And so the legacy we can see in all of um, the early race films that get off the ground, some of the black musicals that we start to see, the black theater um, plays that we see from the se- 1970s and 80s, they're all kind of building on this earlier structure um, that really owes a debt to people like Dudley, like Gibson, like Reeven people who had started out um, with even less resources and still managed to make for a moment a, a, a moment of interracial success in black theater.
1: Well this is an excellent book. I um it's very readable and I think it'd be very easy for anyone to read and understand and you know it's not filled with jargon or anything like that. It's a really <laughs> wonderful history of this of this um uh, moment as you say of of uh, black art being taken seriously in black Mm -hmm. communities, not just by black audiences, but as a a growing business concern that could be supported by black communities um, uh, primarily, Um, along with that interracial aspect of having black and white managers working together within Mm -hmm. um, within a business structure. Um, So big project done now, what do you think you'll be turning to next?
0: So I think my next project is actually an outgrowth of some of the research that I've done on this project. I think my Books kind of follow along a line like you don't want to throw away all of those years of research and so I I still want to say with music and how music connects to civil rights issues and social justice which is what I've tried to do with both the Bessie Smith book and with Toba Time but I was doing some exploration of um Count Basie so during COVID I watched every documentary that came on because we were stuck in the house and so I watched a documentary on Count Basie and I was fascinated with him as a band leader, and he also uh, factors into Toba time because he starts on the Toba circuit. But I was uh, fascinated by his wife, Catherine Basie, who starts as a burlesque dancer. That's how she actually meets um, William Count Basie. And then she leaves the theater and becomes heavily involved in civil rights activities in the 1950s and 60s. And she is part of a social club of other um, wives and mothers and sisters of um, jazz musicians who are also involved in politics. And so that exploration of looking at the connection between music and social justice, but moving it out of the 20s, I'm going to have to leave the 20s behind finally, and getting me into the 1950s and 60s is something that I think I'm working on next.
1: Oh, that sounds so fascinating, and I just I love that there are historians like yourself and others who are taking the partners of these men who were mm-hmm. so popular and and successful, and seeing that the women in their lives had, you know, this whole other life that has been ignored, but that was very important at the time. And exactly. um, um, I, yeah, I'm really excited to see where that project takes you. That's wonderful. Thank, thank you. you. Well, um, thank you so much for joining me today and um, for talking about Toba Time. I'm Kristen Turner, and this is New Books and Music. And I've been talking to Michelle R. Scott about her book, Toba Time, Black Vaudeville and the Theater Owners Booking Association in the in Jazz Age America. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.